If you have your Bible now, you might like to turn to Ezra, the book of Ezra and chapter 1. Just to remind you that the, the Bible is a, it's a whole story really. It, it's made up of 66 books but it tells one story and uh, we come to a place in the story which is really fascinating. Uh, you may remember that God created men and women in his image and likeness and tragically there was rebellion and they were thrown out from the presence of God. And then God began to make a way of escape, a way of mercy. He, he raised up a man called Abraham and promised that through him he would bless all the families of the earth. And he began to work through just the family of Abraham, his children, the nation of Israel. And uh, he gave them a great promise that he would take them into what's called the promised land. It was like another Eden, really. Eden was created from nothing. It was a creation that was already there. So here, they, God says to them, I'm taking you into a land. It's got cities that you've not built, vineyards you've not planted. Uh, the eye of the Lord is continually upon it. It has uh, milk and honey, has rainfall in its seasons. My presence will be there. It's like, well, ha- here's another start. Here's another, another Eden, another land of promise, which will have blessing and favor and mercy and kindness. Ultimately, they will be led to Jerusalem, and there the temple will be built, the presence of God. All that was lost in Eden would be recovered, a land of promise and blessing and the presence of the Lord. Uh, but there was also this word that was said to them as they went in, that they should stand on these two mountains, and one mountain represented blessing, the other represented cursing, rather like Adam and Eve were told, look, this is the will of God, uh, that's prohibited, that's acceptable, but sadly, once again, they didn't fulfil God's requirement. And tragically again, they were exiled from the land. They were banished. You have to, just like Adam and Eve had to get out of Eden, so Israel had to get out of this land of blessing and promise. And they are in exile. But as they go into exile, there's a, there's a wonderful prophetic promise. Jeremiah promises that this time of exile will have an end to it and they will come back. There will be a recovery because God hasn't abandoned his overall plan to bless the world through this people. So these 70 years in exile will be a time of chastening and punishment, but there will then be recovery. They'll they'll, they'll come back again, and then God will start his program again, leading on to the coming of Jesus Christ and the emergence of an international people of God. And so this is the story of how they got back into the land, how God began to speak to them because they'd been 70 years in exile, in Babylon, they were just, uh, uh, just destroyed by the Babylonians and taken away, uh, those who survived, taken away to this land. And then God begins a recovery program. And, and many of us are stirred by the fact that God wants to recover his church from years of being in the doldrums, being kind of uh, uh, unacceptable to many. And God's doing a fresh new thing. So it makes it very relevant to our generation. So I'm just going to read uh, the first few verses of, Jer- of Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that 
he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. I'd just like to read a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for every page we turn that speaks of new hope that you're beginning to do a fresh work. And Father, we thank you that you've never abandoned your purpose to reach out to a troubled world with mercy and kindness and salvation. And Father, we ask you right now, please, for the help of the Holy Spirit. Pray we may hear your voice together, even as we've sung our praise and we'll sing again. Now we ask you to speak to us, please. Let your word come to us with life and revelation. Let it do us good. Let us experience what your word promises, that we'll be washed and inspired by the word of God. So come, Lord, be our teacher, we do pray, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we find the, the whole book beginning with a reference back to the past in order to fulfil the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, now, Jeremiah had prophesied over an extended period of time to the Israelites that if they did not repent, God would throw them out of the land. And he was not well received. Uh, he's often called to us the, uh, called the, the weeping prophet. He was a, a kind of tragic figure, lived in a tragic age, and saw things very clearly that if things carry on like this, God will throw them out. That's what he said he'd do. That's what's going to happen. And they didn't believe him. They said things like, no, the temple of the Lord. God's here. We've got a temple. God will look after us. And tragically, in the end, God did what Jeremiah said would happen. But also, as I said earlier, Jeremiah said, after 70 years, you will be restored. And here this book starts, now, in order to fulfill the word 
of Jeremiah the prophet. I find that ever so encouraging because Jeremiah was not believed. In fact, he was thrown out, he was imprisoned. But history has its outworking to fulfill the word of the Lord. And even when this word is rejected, actually it's God who makes his word work through. It's not the king, actually, it's in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah is refused by the people, but God owns him, God owns the prophetic word he speaks, and history has its outworking according to what had been promised. So a new day is beginning, Cyrus is now reigning, and he has this revelation from God, it's time for the people to go back to the land. And he begins to speak to them and says, let those, every survivor, verse 4, every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him, etc. Every survivor. So I want to speak to you this morning under three headings, really. The first one is survivors whose judgment is past. Right? Survivors whose judgment is past. I find a survivor a fascinating word. Sometimes we have on our news programs these days terrible crises and events, uh, maybe a tsunami or an earthquake or a tornado or even guys trapped in a mine. Uh, and it's a news program. The news, uh, we hear of a terrible devastation. And then afterwards, you see the survivors. And these survivors have somehow escaped. Maybe it was 9-11. Maybe you say, well, I was the only guy on my floor who escaped. I was the only one in my department who came through. We're coming up to, remember, it's Sunday in a couple of weeks' time, as we've just heard. And, and often you'll see on those days the survivors from the war. And they don't kind of walk away free. They don't walk away untouched. And as the camera searches around, you see many of them just shedding tears. Sometimes guys go back to uh, northern France and walk among those just fields of crosses and you see them shedding tears and they remember people who didn't survive. Now something about surviving, that uh, it means you didn't just kind of escape, oh, it didn't hit me. It kind of leaves its mark. Survival is an extraordinary thing. It, it does something in the heart. It's not like nothing happened. You walk away, you think of these uh, children that were killed in Scandinavia recently by this kind of guy who went crazy shooting. Then they interviewed the ones and they said, oh, he, didn't, he didn't hit me. And somehow it leaves a mark, I, I survived. I got through it. Now what did they survive? They survived, first of all, warfare. And if you look at the, the warfare, it was pretty terrifying. In the previous chapter, that is 2 Chronicles 36, we read about it in verse 17. It says that the king of the Chaldeans came up. They slew their young men with sword. Uh, and it says that they had no compassion. All the articles of gold were taken. In verse 19, they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem. It, it was pretty devastating. And in fact, I read to you from Isaiah 1, if the Lord had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah when God did judge, when God wiped out the whole of two cities, just destroyed them. I said, but God left us a few survivors, people who somehow came through and out the other end. I wonder if you saw the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan. Incredible movie. I think it's the only movie I've ever been to the cinema. We went over and bought some popcorn or equivalent before going in. 
And uh, the guy said to me, uh, Sir, as you go into the, the first ten minutes of this movie are very harrowing. I've never been warned as I was buying something, this is going to be harrowing. And sure enough, it was. And uh, the whole story, you may remember, is how some men were killed, brothers actually, and there's one surviving brother that they know is on the field, and they send a squadron to go and rescue him. And the, and the, the end of the movie has this very poignant moment when the guy says, please tell me that it was worth it. Please tell me that I lived a life worthy of survival. That whole sense that I was given my life back. I, I had another chance. Others didn't. And that's what survival has about it. It kind of leaves you thinking, well, I could have lost my life. I could have... And there's also that sense of, I owe a debt. Maybe there's some sort of destiny that God, God rescued me. And gave, he had some reason for me to survive. Others didn't survive. And that, that kind of feel is over it. I remember once I was watching a program about... Uh, the Blitz in London, and you see the, 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 the fires and smoke everywhere and buildings toppling down. And I remember watching it, and uh, there was a guy holding a hose, uh, uh, just pouring water, this fireman pouring water into this fire. Then they interviewed a fireman, and he said, I was standing there for hours holding a hose, and the water's pouring through, and, and, and I just think, how long can I carry this on for? I'm freezing, and yet I'm burning, and it's just a terrible experience. And eventually somebody came and tapped him on the shoulder and said, it's okay, I'm taking over from you. And uh, he, 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 took the, he took the hose, and he stood there, and the guy walked away, and he said, as I was walking away, the wall fell and killed it. And he thought, and I survived. I walked away. I mean, just a few more minutes, it would have been me. And survival has that about it. It's a sort of, I, I, I escaped. I remember when my uh, father-in-law, he was, uh, Wendy's father was in Burma in the war. Five years. Uh, that's an extraordinary thing. Wendy's parents got married and were together for about three or four weeks. Then he went away for five years into the Burma war. And when he came back, we were, they would ask him questions. What happened? What happened? Oh, it's like, I don't want to talk about it, really. Because of the pain and the association. But I survived. God's given me another chance. I have a life to live. I have a sense of destiny. And I think that's what's about survivors. A sense, well, we have a destiny. We're on the earth for something. Have another opportunity to live. So they survived a war, but it wasn't just an ordinary war. It's not just like the terrors of any ordinary war. This is God's judgment on the land. The reason there was warfare was God was furious with the sin of the nation. It was he who instigated it. And so it was God who acted in judgment for all their disloyalty, their terrible spiritual uh, breakdown, the immorality, the worship of false gods, the offering up their children to false gods. God said, I'm going to destroy the thing. So it's not just warfare. It's God's judgment on the land. So these have survived judgment. They've survived from God punishing the nation. It's a little bit like the Passover when Israel was first brought to birth, when the nation got formed, when Moses was raised up and went down to Egypt and God said, I'm going to judge the whole of the nation, but if you put the blood on the doorposts of your home, I will punish every household, but when I see the blood, I won't punish you. Where I see the blood of a lamb, you survive. Where the lamb died, you don't have to die. 
When the lamb dies, no one in that household will die because he replaces you and you survive. And so it's rather like that. Here's a people who've survived not just warfare, but God's fury and judgment. A people who've been rescued and set free. No wonder they always celebrated the Passover, the time when God forgave, God released, God gave them another opportunity, another chance. And so judgment was real, but whenever they celebrated Passover, they knew judgment was past, it was behind them. God had rescued them. And of course this is where we can identify as believers. The wonderful thing that we know, judgment is past. When Jesus died on the cross, he shouted, it is finished, I bear all the judgment, I bear all the guilt, I bear all the shame, and those who put their trust in me, they will survive judgment. One took our place, one suffered on our behalf, and so we walk away like the Israelites did, and know that wonderful thing, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like we've been rescued. We've been set free. We've survived the judgment of God. Judgment was real, but now it's past. We're out the other side. And we've got this in common with these people that we've come through. It's like we've got our lives back. We have a sense of destiny. God gave us mercy. God gave us another chance to live life. And judgment is behind. And notice this, it says... Those of his people, those who have survived of his, all of his people, verse 3, whoever there is of you, of his people. It's wonderful to know that although God was furious with them, they didn't lose their identity. They were still his people. They failed miserably, but he didn't disown them. I love, the, I love the stories, don't you, of the resurrection appearances of our Lord Jesus. When you find him coming back from the dead. And there's Simon Peter, who said, I don't know him, I'm not with him. And there's Thomas, who said, I don't believe anything. And, and these guys that Jesus had spent years training, loving, serving, looking after, leading along. And they all ran away, they all fled. And then you get these resurrection appearances where Jesus comes to them. And it's like, no, you're still my people. And sometimes we do things, we think, well, I guess I may have thrown away the opportunity still to be called a child of God. Maybe, maybe it was all too bad, maybe that's the end. And yet this is wonderful, it says those of his people, they're still, they've come through uh, exile, They've come through what seems like terrible punishment. It's like they've come through death and out the other side, and yet they're still his people. And you see that in Jesus, that in his infinite mercy, he finds Simon Peter. All he wants to know is, do you still love me, Peter? Do you love me? And there he is, freshly engaging with him. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who needs to hear that. Maybe you feel, oh, maybe I've been too... I've just thrown away everything. I've, I've messed up so much. Well, here it says, if you're his, you're still his. And we can go through difficult times, but he re-engages the way he picks up his scattered disciples who are so tender, so merciful, and they are survivors because his love is there. You still belong. These people have been through it, but they still belonged. And it's so wonderful for us to know. Sometimes we go through things 
But it says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. So here we are, survivors whose judgment is past. People have come through the fires, they've come through difficulty, now they've been raised to newness of life. They've been given a fresh start. Here we can go into God's purpose. And those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, that's true of us. We've been given our lives back. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. God starts a game with us. He gives us a fresh beginning. So survivors whose judgment is past. Do you know your judgment is behind you? Because Jesus took our place. There's no more guilt. There's no more fear of future judgment. It's done. It's over. We've survived judgment. Hallelujah. Second heading then is seers with a vision for the future. Survivors whose judgment is past. Seers with a vision for the future. Now this is a small group. If you add up the figures, you'll find in Ezra 2 and 64, there were just 42,000 of them. Just 42,000. You think, that's the whole of Israel? 42,000? That's like two Stonelys. And uh, we're talking about a nation that used to be two million. And it's reduced right down to 42,000. Wow, that is the nation now. Only 42,000 survived. Just a handful. But you find that happens throughout the Old Testament. When, when Elijah was serving God, there were only 7,000. It, it was reduced right down to 7,000. Only 7,000 had not bowed the knee to Baal. And so the nation of Israel knew times where they were powerful, effective under Solomon, under David, when their boundaries were pushed back, the nation prospered, it was a great big nation, and then there were times when it was very, very limited. In Samuel's day, it said the light had almost gone out. It's like the light, this nation is supposed to be the light of the world, supposed to be God's voice to all the peoples. This is God's special people. He wants them to bless everybody. And it's right down to 40,000, 7,000. In fact, you find that similarly at the beginning of the Gospels, where you just get one or two that are still looking for God. Simeon and Anna and these lovely stories you read in Luke's Gospel where there's just a handful of righteous people who are still hoping that they might see the mercy of God. Just an auth- a few authentic believers. But I want us to see this, that these were seers. They could see that God had got more. That God hadn't finished with them. And so when the word went out, now it's those of you who survived and whose spirit is stirred within you, I want you to go back and rebuild the house of God. Those of you who can see that could yet happen. That God's not finished with his purposes yet. That we could still have a, a, a great temple. God could rebuild the temple. God could re-establish his presence in the nation. We could still go on with what God initially intended. What God was always after, it's still possible. And so there was, these people were seers. There wasn't much to look at, but they had prophetic vision. They could see into the future. They were captivated by something that had really come to them in a way that thrilled them. I love the story in the New Testament where it says that Simeon went up to the temple when Mary and Joseph brought the baby to the temple. 
And Simeon was a prophet. He was a seer. And it says he took the baby. And he was an old man. He'd been waiting for the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the hope of God. And he took the baby in his arms. He said, now, let my, your servant depart. In other words, I'm, I don't mind. I can die now. Why? Because my eyes have seen your salvation. He's just looking at a baby. He said, I've seen enough. I've seen enough to stir me, to motivate me, to make me know God is working out his plan. And just holding that baby in his arms was enough to excite him and stir him to faith. And here we've got people who are saying, God can yet do what he promised he would do. And they're stirred with faith. They're just a civilian group. They're not soldiers who are going to fight a battle. They're just men and women, 42,000, who are going to go. But they saw what God had purposed. And in that, they're actually true children of Abraham. Because that's how God first started. God spoke to a man called Abraham and said, Abraham, can you count the stars? Can you count the numbers of grains of sand? So many will your children be. And the Bible says, Abraham believed God. This is possible. This can happen. God has promised, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. That is how everything got started in God's plan to bring salvation to the nations. He came to one pagan, that was his plan, one pagan called Abraham said, now, through you, I will bless all the nations. I will bless you and make you a blessing. And it says, Abraham believed God. So he, he stepped into the realm of faith. He, he's an old man, his wife's barren. And so he's not looking at what's possible naturally. He's saying, if God promised this, then it's going to happen. If God said it, it will happen. And really that's the story of the Bible again and again where God brings people and says to them, this is what I promise I'll do with you. And the person becomes more impressed with the promise of God than he is with the circumstances. But he steps out of the limitation of what I think I can accomplish and, and sees God can make this happen. And that's how the Bible highlights its heroes, whether it's David going against Goliath and others saying, that's impossible, you can't do that. He said, no, no, I'm going in the name of the Lord. Or Joshua walking around Jericho and they said, well, this is foolishness. He said, no, no, by faith I'm going. And by faith the walls of Jericho fall down. And so the Bible is full of stories of people who believe God when it looks impossible. You can't do that. That's out of the question. And when Israel lost its way, and that's why they went into exile, they stopped believing God. They didn't believe God could help them, and so they turned to false gods. They just began to imitate the other nations. They forgot their distinctive identity, that the people of God are believers. They believe God. That's one of the names of uh, the people of God in the Bible. They are believers. They believe him. And the Bible celebrates such people, men and women, who went against the tide because, well, God said it, so it's going to happen. And beloved, we need to work that right into our lifestyles, right into our family raising, our jobs, every circumstance that we can say, no, I'm going to believe God, he made promises. He's committed himself. And so we walk not by sight, but by faith. 
And these people had that about them, that although they were just a small crowd, they believed God. And it says of Abraham at the beginning, in Romans 4, he did not weaken when he considered his own body as good as dead, being about 100 years old. Or the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He didn't say, the circumstances make this impossible. So if we just work by what our eyes see, what, what is tangible, we won't go very far as Christians. But this is the victory that overcomes the world. It's our faith. It's drawing on what God says is true. And Jesus walked that way. Jesus' whole ministry was that way. And so he says to ten lepers who are full of leprosy, he says, go show yourself to the priest. Now, if a leper got healed or cleansed in any way, the first thing they had to do was show themselves to the priests to be included again in the nation. Because they were not only sick, they are socially outcast. So if you got healed, if your leprosy left you, that's the first thing you had to do. And Jesus said, now go show yourself to the priest. And it says this, as they went on their way, they were made whole. In other words, when Jesus said, go and do it, they could have said, why? What's the point? I'm full of leprosy. But Jesus said, now go. And they believed him. Because being around Jesus gave you faith. And and he imparted faith so that you were more impressed by what he said than you were by the things that you could see. And so the New Testament is full of things where people, they just reach out and touch Jesus. And they see something supernatural happen. They break out of the limitations of human ability into another dimension. And that's open to all of us, beloved. That we can step out of our limitations. Because the Bible says this, God has chosen the weak things. He doesn't choose many mighty. He doesn't choose many noble. He doesn't choose many of influence. He chooses the weak. Why? So that he can be glorified. How? By our believing him. And so as as we believe him, we break out of our limitations, our personality, our, our sense, well, I can't do that. I couldn't possibly. That's not in my skill level. No, no, no. Jesus invites us into another dimension. He says to his disciples, when they say, all these people are hungry, you feed them. Peter says, if it's you walking on the water, call me, I'll do it. Being around Jesus inspired people to live outside of their limitations. Inspired them to say, I can do it. He's calling me to live by faith. He's calling me to step out. And dear friends, if we don't catch that, we just become moralists, really. We just go to church and try not to sin too much. You know, just go along. God wants us to step into another dimension where what we feel I can't do, we find, hey, I can do. When we feel that's out of my sphere, no, no, it's within, why? Because God is inviting us to trust him. Inviting us to believe him in prayer. Inviting us to ask for things that seem, wow, is that possible? But church history shows us again and again how people step out of their limitations into another dimension and how often God chooses the weak in order that he can break through. And so these people were more impressed by the promise 
than they were by what was there before them. We mentioned last Sunday here the story of what we've seen happen in New Frontiers again and again, again and again. Little group, a handful, believed God. I think of John in Accra, in Ghana, just going back with his family and saying, well, let's believe God, we can start a church. Well, it's impossible, how can you do that? And he was trying to do things more biblically. Trying to do them not, not so externally, not so religiously. So he said, well, you, you know, just call me John instead of, you know, the bishop and these other names that people had. And he was just being informal and friendly and opening the Bible, but believing God, believing God, believing God. And now he's got church of hundreds and planting churches all over Ghana and over into Nigeria and Sierra Leone and seven nations. Faith, he's believing God. And so all that we see happen, it comes because God has promised. God has said it. God will do it. We believe God's made us promises. You think, why is that possible? Can you, can you really believe for a bingo hall? Is it possible that we can believe for that? This God spoke into our hearts and stimulated faith so that we can see what is unseeable. So that we can believe him for what currently cannot be seen. John Stott says about vision, he says this, it is a compound of deep dissatisfaction with what is and a clear grasp of what could be. A grasp of what could be. Is that in your heart yet? Lord, what you want, what you're going to do, something that will bring you great glory. It's been my joy to be in so many places where a handful started, often just in a home, and now hundreds are meeting in substantial buildings and they're having big impact on their cities because they believed God. And so we need to see here survivors whose judgment's passed. Thank God, guilt has gone. There's no condemnation. Judgment's behind us. We've survived judgment. We're like those Israelites. The Passover has dealt with our past. Jesus has re-engaged with us and says, come on into my future. Come into what I have for you. Even like with Simon Peter, come on, do you love me? I'm still for you, I'm still with you. Let's press on to all that I have for you. Survivors whose judgment is past, but seers whose faith, whose vision is for the future. God says, I want you to build my house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might appear in my glory. Zechariah is a current prophet, Haggai, Zechariah. They prophesy into this generation and they say to them, come on, now build the house. And they begin to build it and God says that I might take pleasure in it. Something that brings God pleasure and that I might appear in my glory. Where there's a manifestation of God's love, God's presence, God's power. God wants to come and manifest his glory. So seers whose vision is in the future, like Abraham, right from the beginning, did not weaken when he considered his own body, his own limitation, thinking well, it's not possible for me. He didn't, no, no, God, God, it says being fully persuaded that what God had promised he's also able to perform. We must let God persuade us being fully persuaded and we get persuaded by, by letting the word of God 
persuade us, the promises of God, the character of God, the purpose of God to glorify his Son. He wants to glorify Jesus in all the earth. He wants to have a people that will rise to that. So he says, I want you to go build my house. And 2 Corinthians 4, it says, not looking at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Faith is the conviction of things not yet seen. Beloved, once we see it, we won't need faith anymore. Once we're there, we won't need faith. Faith is, is a conviction, it's absolute certainty. It's like having the title deed. That phrase in Hebrews 11, it can be translated, you have the title deed. It's like, we've got the deed, we haven't seen the house yet, but we've got the deed, it's as good as mine. I have it. I remember when my son Joel went to uh, Newcastle University and uh, he said, Dad, would you, uh, you know, I'm going, uh, can I have the money? It's one of the joys of being a parent, eh? I'm off to university. And, uh, uh, and I said to him, well, look, I tell you what, I, I'll send you the money every month. I'd like to write to you anyway. I'll just send you a check every month. And he went on the strength of that. All he had was his dad's promise. I'll send you a check every month. And that was the end of the argument. That, was the, that, that seemed to give him peace. Silly fool, eh? <laughs> no, no it, it, came, it came every month. Because I, I promised him I'd do it. And so he didn't see it yet. hadn't got it yet. Faith is the conviction. He was, he was assured. I, I know I've got it. And so he went on his way merrily because he had the promise of the Father. And that's how faith works. And once you've got, once we've got it, we won't need faith. Faith operates when you can't see. Faith operates when you don't have it yet. So God's looking for us to be believers this morning. To believe what God wants. To believe what God will do. To trust God that he'll, he's going to do it. That's what God's word has said. That's what we're going to believe. I remember when we were in the church in Brighton and we wondered, should we go in one meeting or two meetings? Things were beginning to grow. We weren't sure. We were considering it a lot. And uh, I had a prayer meeting in my home. Some of the pastors around Sussex gathered. We were just praying and worshipping. And there was a guy called Peter Brooks, an Australian who was the pastor at the time. And one of the other guys said, I don't know why I have to say this, but he said, I have to say to you, Pete, two sevens are fourteen. And we were wondering, do we meet here? And we were getting about 700 at that time. And it was kind of wide out of the blue. Two sevens are 14. I said, I don't know what it means. I don't know why I have to say it. But I have to say it. And Peter and I looked at one another and said, that's it. 14. 1400. It's going to be 1400. And the last three weeks in the Brighton meeting, it's just been 14 short of 1400. And when he said it, we were like 700. Two sevens are fourteen. Now it's just fourteen short of fourteen hundred. And it was just a word. And we said we're going to believe that. We prayed about that so many times. You're going to do this. We had a word. We had a promise. And we said, right, we're going to believe him. Why don't we go on an adventure of faith? God said some wonderful things. Let's believe him. Let's walk with him. We want to see Jesus glorified. We want to see Jesus honoured just the tragedy last week of a guy stumbling out of a nightclub and 
knife to death in Kingston? You think, Lord Jesus, you've got something better than that for this town. You've got answers. Where does the answer like lies in a church that impacts a city? I want to believe for that, don't you? I want to believe for a church that will impact the whole area and glorify the name of Jesus. So we, we need to be seers. Right? We're, we're survivors. Thank you, Jesus. Judgment's passed. You could have slaughtered us. We could have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But you gave us some survivors. Whew, thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. You su- I've got a purpose, a destiny. I escaped. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste my life. That's what they said in Ryan, Saving Private Ryan. Please tell me that I was worth it. Please tell me the life I lived. It was worth all that went after I survived. I want my life to be worth it. Don't you? To do something that glorifies him. And we're not just individuals, we're together in this. And then seers, whose visions for the future. Finally, supporters, whose commitment is in the present. Verse 4. Every survivor, whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold. We've come to another gift day. Opportunity to support the vision. Opportunity to express our commitment. Let them support with silver and gold. Some went with the first wave, Zerubbabel, they went the first journey, then the next wave was Ezra himself, the next wave is Nehemiah, it's like wave upon wave goes to rebuild the city. It's a bit like our church has been here. There was, there was an early wave, there's another wave, here we come, people coming on in, joining in the purpose of God, to see this city rebuilt, to see this temple restored. And it's just supporters. I don't know if you're a supporter of anybody. People sometimes say to me, uh, who do you support? And, um, you know, for years, you, it's kind of ashamed. You say, well, oh, Brighton and Hove Albion. Uh, <laughs> and then you kind of secretly support Man United or something because you're more excited about being a supporter. You think, are, you a, are you really a supporter, Terry? Well, I always look and see how they got on. I have a friend, Matt Davis, he's one of the elders in the Brighton church, and uh, he said to me, I've got, I've got a couple of season tickets for this season, do you want to come and see a game? I said, you've got two season tickets? He said, well, you don't want to go alone, do you? I said, okay. So, <laughs> I went along. And I mean, I'll go along, I'll look it up. But a supporter is something a bit different. You know, I'm vaguely interested I don't turn up every week. Um, my, my youngest son is a, a Newcastle supporter. He was a very good striker. And Alan Shearer was his hero. And he played for Newcastle. And uh, so my, 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 he loved Newcastle. And one day they were playing in uh, South London, Crystal Palace, I think. And uh, I, I said, Should I take, I'd like to take you. He said, oh, can I go? And uh, we went down to see them. And I don't know if you know about Newcastle fans. They are pretty remarkable. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, I've been to see Brighton quite a lot over the years, but I'd never seen fans like this. Uh, before you actually got in the building, all down the streets outside, guys in black and white, 
you know, striped shirts. And uh, then you go into the, into the stadium and uh, the game hasn't started yet. I mean, they're just there. And they're singing and shouting. I think, we haven't started. And then they come out to just warm up, kick the ball around. And they go bananas. I think, well, this isn't the game. This is, and, and if Shearer ran near them, oh, Shearer, Shearer. You think, wow, this is crazy. I've never seen anything like it. I honestly have never seen anything like it. And they're just going absolutely crazy. And then when the game started, it's thunderous. I mean, it's all seater. Not one of them is sitting. I mean, they're shouting and singing and shouting. And they were away, they're the away supporters. I mean, what it's like when you go there, I don't know, this is the away gang. And they're making far more noise than the home supporters. I mean, far more. They're singing and shouting and going on. And actually, it was like at least two-thirds way through the first half that the other team actually invaded their half and took a shot at goal and their team shouted and supported when something happened. But the Newcastle fans just laughed at them because they actually cheered for a moment their team as opposed to the Newcastle supporters who incessantly shouting and screaming and they went in 1-0 down at half term. You'd have thought they were five up. Now that's a supporter. That's a supporter. Those supporters. Am I a supporter? I'll look at the paper, see how they got on. I don't turn up. I don't turn up every week. I don't travel to away games. Forget it. These are supporters. Supporters. Those who are supporters. They encourage you. Verse 6. They will encourage you. That's what we're doing here. We're encouraging. We're, We're saying we're with you. The elders have said, we believe God spoke and we're, we're trusting God. And we're saying, yeah, I'm with you. We're with you. We're in this together. We're supporting. And that's what happened. He let them give their silver and their gold. As each one, it says, it's a free will offering. Verses 4 and 6, that phrase comes up, free will. It's not demanded of us. It's not like, here, you must give a tithe. If you don't, you're in trouble. That's kind of Old Testament, really. The New Testament says every man should do as he pleased to do. As you've made up your own mind, out of the mercy of God. Something we do from our hearts, full of gratitude and thanksgiving. And it's an offering to God. Actually, it's to help them do what they've been called to do. But the Bible says, no, it's an offering. It's something we do to God, for God. That, that, that adds something to it. it. It sanctifies it. It's not just pragmatic. It's not just let's have a whip round. It's something we're doing to please him, to worship him. We're doing something that he sees from our hearts, obviously from our pockets. And it's got intangible value because it's an offering. So what we do shortly is bring our worship, our offering. It will invade our lives as we go on to these, these, we're survivors. We've given our lives back. It's not a casual thing. For me, it's not a casual thing. I've got my life back. I want to make sure, Lord, I hope I'm worth it. I want you to have my life. 
And so that's going to affect the way we give. We survived. It says in Philippians 4.18, having received what you sent, a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That was when these people sent to Paul for his apostolic journeys. No, 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 it's a fragrant aroma. That's got Old Testament feel to it. Sacrifices, fragrance, the offering. It's like an offering. It's like a worship event. With such sacrifices, we're told, God is pleased. So this morning we want to please him. We're so grateful. As Phil said earlier, the giving's been so thrilling, so encouraging. I believe it's coming out of a, a sense I've seen something, we're on, a, we're on a journey, it's captivated us, we're going for it. So yes, we want to do this. We want to endorse it, we want to support it, so that in God's moment, in God's time, we move on to that next phase. And God has a, a place in the centre of town that says Jesus is alive. There's hope for the world, there's an answer for our poor generation that's so bewildered and so confused that they can see a people who found God and found the answer. Let's pray.